0: Hey friends, this is Josh Blair, and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer for the message you hear today that it will inspire you and encourage you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, please check us out at CVC Madera, both on Facebook and Instagram, and you could check out our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church. Thanks for listening. So, verse 28, like I said, begins with the disciples asking Jesus, taking him to the side privately, and asking him why they are unable to cast out the demon. We had learned previously in chapter 3 that Jesus had given them the authority and the power over demonic spirits to cast them out, to heal the sick. And they do it in chapter 3, but for some reason in chapter 9, they get to chapter 9, and they're unable. They're unable to do it. And Jesus tells them at the end that this kind of spirit only comes out through prayer. Assuming uh, we are, but, but based on... What we see in the text is that the disciples are not praying. For some reason, they, they had, I don't know, I, I, in my words, believe in that they're maybe getting arrogant or perhaps maybe cocky about um, the power of God moving through them. And, and, I, and, I, and I say that because I have seen it firsthand. I have seen people who, when the Spirit of God has moved through them, they become almost arrogant about it. Like, I am the one. I'm the one who God speaks to. I'm the one who, who performs the miracles. I'm the one It becomes about them instead of God and the power of God in them. And I believe that assumption is correct by what we find later on in chapter 9. So Jesus tells them, look, you've not been praying, so the power of God's not moving through you. So I want us to keep that in mind as we move through because we're perceiving that the disciples are missing the point of something here. They're missing what it means to follow Jesus. And it, looks, and it looks like they're more concerned with themselves than with others. Throughout, actually, the Gospel of Mark, we recognize that the disciples have a hard time grasping what Jesus is talking about most, most of the time. Most of the time they're, they're taking Jesus in private or they're asking him later on after he ministers, what did you mean by that or why did you do that or well, what's really going on here? They, they fail to grasp what Jesus is saying and we see it later on in the text. Verse 30 says that uh, they went from there, that place where they cast out, or Jesus cast out the demon from the boy and they passed through Galilee and Jesus didn't want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples, and he was teaching them something very intimate and very private, but it would reveal something very personal about Jesus to his disciples. And he said this, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Verse 32 says this, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand what he was saying. Now, granted. Jesus did teach in parables, and he used hyperbole a lot. So maybe they were not grasping. Maybe they thought he was talking about somebody else or something else, or he was alluding to something else. But he was speaking very plainly to them as he would tell the disciples. I speak to people in parables, but to you I make plain the mysteries of God. Right? This is what he tells them. But they're not understanding. And it says that they were afraid to ask him. Why would they be afraid to ask him? Because they didn't want to look dumb. Right? Anytime someone... Okay, so when you're in school... And you're supposed to know the answer. And, the, and, and, and you don't know the answer. You just nod and agree like, oh, mm-hmm, that's right. You don't want them to look dumb at all. You don't want, you don't, it, it's a pride issue, right? Am I the only one who's ever done that? Okay, thank you. You know, I, I remember, I was not a very good reader growing up. And I would just fake it till I could make it. Do you remember when... The teacher would assign, you would have to read the texts. Like you have a big textbook and the teacher said, we're going to read this story. I remember it was like in the seventh or eighth grade. And we'd have, you open up your textbook and we're going to read this story and it would be paragraphs. And I would count which paragraph I would have, right? Have you ever done that? You're like, okay, she's got that one. I, I'm going to have this one. I would practice that one like eight times in my head. I would not listen at all to what they were doing so that I wouldn't look stupid when it came to me. I would know the words. I would know how to read it. And I would try to read it fluently and make it flow. And it's like, wow, he's such a great reader. Little did they know I was rehearsing that, that paragraph like a million times, trying to get it right, because I didn't want to look dumb. And the disciples are not asking Jesus the question they need to ask him because they don't want to look dumb. It is a pride thing, it's a pride thing in them. We see it, it is a pattern that we see in the disciples. They're arrogant, that's why they can't cast out a demon. And then when Jesus is trying to reveal to him the mysteries and, and develop intimacy with them and trying to remind them that he is who he says he is, they won't ask him further details because they're trying to fake it until they make it. But here in chapter 9 and even in chapter 10, Jesus tells them three separate times that he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to remind them, I am God. I am The one that you're serving is God. Not only do I know the future, so he's not saying, I'm, I'm, not only am I just a prophet who knows what's going to happen, but I am going to overcome the situation I'm going to rise again. I am the God that you're looking for. He tells them, he's trying to reveal to them of his power and the fact that he is God. We see it all through chapter 9. We see it, so in chapter 8, we have the confession of Peter who says, you are the Christ, Right? And from there, everything begins to speed up. So in chapter 8, he confesses he's Christ. In chapter 9, he sees the glory and the manifestation of Jesus on the mountaintop in the transfiguration. He sees, wow, this is God. We see the glory of Jesus shining and manifesting, and he hears the voice. This is my son. Listen to him, right? We see that happening, and then then in chapter 9, the transfiguration, then then he comes down and he he casts out the demon that no one else can. Then he tells him, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'll rise again. And even later on in this passage, he tells them again, I am God. He's trying to reassure them. I am the God so that uh, that the next thing I'm going to ask you to do is going to be possible if you understand who I am. Are you following me? I'm going to tell you to do something, but you're going to think this is totally against what we feel is right to do. But he's trying to say, I'm God so you can do it. He's telling them all the way through this chapter, but the disciples don't get it. They don't understand the one whom they're following or the one they're serving. And they begin to argue. Verse 33 says this. And they came from Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34 says this. But they kept silent. Right? Pride. They, they were ashamed of what they were discussing. They kept silent. For on the way, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine? That's That's crazy. They're trying to argue who of themselves are the greatest, and they don't want to tell Jesus because they're ashamed of it. Verse 35 says this, And they sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Why can Jesus say that? Because he is exemplifying it right there in their presence. I am the king. I am the creator of the universe, and yet I have come to serve. He even says it in chapter 10. I came to serve, not to be served. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, I want you to be servants. Don't worry about being first. Be last. Because I am God. And he's trying to tell the disciples. And the disciples, they're, they're so mixed up that they're, they're confused about what's going on. They're coming from a failed exorcism where they couldn't do the things that they had been given the power to do. And as they're walking along, are arguing who's greatest out of the 12 of them. And Jesus asked them about it, and they try to keep a secret. It reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they, when they had direct a command from God, don't eat the fruit of this tree. And they walk over, and they assume in themselves they know what's best for themselves. And they ignore the command of God based on their own, their own pride issues, and decide... I know what's best for me, and I'm going to take. And when they do, then they try to hide from God because of their their shape. And I think that that nature is within all of us. As followers of Jesus or people who, who aren't believers in Christ, that nature is in all of us. That we think that we know what's best for ourselves over and against the Word of God. And when, when our pride is exposed, then we try to hide from it. And we, try, we understand how foolish it is, and we try to hide ourselves. But Jesus wants to set the record straight. Notice, he doesn't even, they don't even tell him what, he's, what they're talking about on the road. When he asks them, they just stop. But Jesus knows what they're talking about. He knows every heart. So he pulls them aside and says, Look, look if you want to be first, if you're arguing about who's first, Who's greatest? If you want to be great, be the servant of all. If you want to be first, be last. And this is how my kingdom works. And to to illustrate that, he, he brings a small child in their midst. He's saying, Look, if you in my in my kingdom, don't try to elevate yourself over other people. My kingdom is not about competition. My kingdom is not about you put others down so you can be, that you can stand up on them, that you can stand over them. And he tries to demonstrate, I don't want you caring about yourself. I want you to be caring for others and serving others. Verse 36 says this, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. What is Jesus saying here? For, 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 to fully understand this saying, we have to understand the role of a child in that society. The first thing is this, that children are not, were not seen as, as they are seen today. Children are not, were not seen as innocent in biblical times, right? Uh, even St. Augustine was like, children are little devils, is what he basically called them. Like little devils. And those of us who are parents, we know that children are heathens. We know the, the Lord is not in you, little one. <laughs> we know that they need to be radically transformed by the power of Jesus, too. Right? So, but, but back then, they were not seen as innocent. They were not seen as valuable. Parents, if they didn't want a child after its birth, they could just set it outside their door and walk away. They, they didn't have to care for it. They weren't responsible for it. They had, it, was, it, was a, it was commodity. It was a property to them the child was not seen as valuable so what jesus is saying here is if you will receive a child in my name you receive me what is he saying what's interesting about the word child in the aramaic it is a, it's a synonym, it's a synonym for servant they are interchangeable so jesus is tying himself to servants He is tying himself to those who are lowly and of no estate. He is tying himself to the marginalized, to the oppressed, and those at most risk within society. And he's saying, if you receive them in my name, you don't just receive them, you receive me. And if you receive me, you don't just receive me, you receive the Father who sent me. That is a huge statement. Not only in that time, but today. That Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it means to be my follower, you will be the one who serves and not is served. You'll be the one who is humble and not proud. And he's confronting the pride within the disciples' hearts. If you'll care for the powerless, if you'll care care for the insignificant. And what does he say by receiving? The word receiving is if you will care for, if you will take in, if you will provide a space for. So if he's saying, if you'll provide a space for those who are lowest in society, those who are out on the margins, those who have been oppressed in your community, those who are at the highest risk of issue, and you'll care for them, not only are you caring for them, you're caring for me, you are receiving me in and you're receiving the Father in. And the disciples, on the other hand, were more concerned with their own status, with their own notoriety, and Jesus flat out tells them, nope, you're not important. You're not important. People knowing your name doesn't matter because it's not about you. Oftentimes when we read Scripture, we always put ourselves in the hero role. When we read the story of David and Goliath, who do we become? David. (laughs) We're not David. Who is David? Jesus. He's the one who slays our giants. Not us. And sometimes we begin to elevate ourselves. And we make it about ourselves. And we are more concerned with our own platform or how people view us or our own notoriety within community. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about you. But do the disciples get it? What do you think? No. They don't get it. Why? What does it say in verse 38? John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And what does he say? And we tried to stop him. Because of what? He's not following who? Us. He doesn't say because he's not following you. No, he's not following us. He's not doing it the way we want him to do it. What I find is so interesting in here is that the disciples... Here's the sandwich. The disciples... Try to cast out demons and they fail. Then they argue about who is the greatest. <laughs> and then they see when casting out demons and they stop him because they don't like what he's doing. Why would they do that? Because of arrogance and pride. I don't like the way you do it. In fact, your success makes me look bad. And we're not going to have that. So you're going to stop. Because you should do it the way I want you to do it. You should get in line behind me. This is the, this is, Mark is clearly pointing this out to us. When disciples of Jesus are more concerned about their own greatness rather than the greatness of God that they serve, they are, they are misconstrued and they're off track. And we miss the point of who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus is the answer we need. And the disciples were more concerned about if someone is following them, not following Jesus. Here it is again. The focus is on them. He wasn't following us. He was being successful in something we failed at. You know what? We don't like that. We're not a fan of that. So homeboy needs to stop until he knows his right place. See, church, I can tell you this, that this still happens today. In the church, between churches, and between people in the church. When we read this section of Scripture, please understand that you and I are the disciples in this story. Far too often, we're more concerned with ourselves, with our status, the way others view us, the, the way people perceive our own righteousness, to the detriment of those Jesus has called us to serve. How do we know that? Because the disciples say the man was casting out demons from people who were oppressed by demons, possessed by demons. They say nothing about the people who are getting delivered. They're only cared about the one who's actually performing it. They don't even care about the people who need a touch from Jesus. They're more concerned about the person not being in line and following them. They don't care about those who are oppressed. And if that happens in the church, when we stop caring about those who are oppressed, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've missed what Jesus has called us to do as the body of Christ. When we're more concerned about how we look than those who are suffering and in pain, who've been pushed out, who are struggling are struggling. I think it's insane, but yet it still happens. We see it between churches who are competing with other churches for the same people. They're competing about the next next big idea, the next great thing that's going to make them look great, to get their name out there. What's crazy to me is that churches sometimes are more concerned with their names than the name of Jesus. Hey, we're out here. We love you. We're from Central Valley Church. No, no. Hey, we love you. We're out here. Jesus has sent us. We're here to lift up the name of Jesus. We're here to tell you Jesus loves you, that he came and died for you, that you could have hope in a future. We're not concerned about people knowing our name so that they can come to our church, so that we can get bigger, so that we can get more well-known in our city. No, we want the name of Jesus to be well-known in our city. It happens. It happens. Even, even the way we talk about other churches, and I know that I'm guilty of it. Oh, that church I hear over there, I hear that it's boring. I hear that it's lifeless. Or you'll hear, oh, that, that church is crazy. They're a little out of control. They're a little out there for me. As if we have the responsibility to tell people what we think about their church. As if our voice and our opinion matters. Why? Because we elevate ourselves. And we're prideful and we're arrogant, thinking that we have the answer when we don't. It happens, and it's because a spirit of jealousy and a spirit of competition. And Jesus doesn't want that at all in his church. He wants a spirit of unity because competition and jealousy quench the spirit of God that brings life and freedom. Not only do we see it in churches, we see it from people to people, and it's rooted in our lack of understanding of where our value comes from and who Jesus really is. Our value is not in what we do. Our value is found in what has been done for us on the cross. When Jesus he paid the ultimate price for us, he declared our worth and our value in the cross, saying that "You are worthy of life. I am going to spill my blood so that you can be redeemed." It was not an act of our own. It was not in our own doing. It was not in our own uh, performance. It was done at the cross. He demonstrated our value. So if our value is determined in the cross, then I don't have to push you down to lift me up. Because my value is not based on what I do. It's based on what he's done. He, the innocent, died for the guilty. The king became servant so that we could enter his kingdom. He elevated us with a place and when he did that, it didn't diminish who he was. He's still king. He's still God as he brought us up with him. So our value isn't found in what we do. Our also, our value is not found in the gifts we possess. Sometimes we've, we, we try to demonstrate or we, our, some of our gifts and our talents are, are greater on display than others and and. and Foolishly, we say those values and those gifts are greater than those other values and other gifts. And, and we, we allow our gifts to elevate us above other people. Sometimes we elevate our gifts over others to make us feel more valuable. There's a story. The story of the unknown exorcist in Mark is oftentimes paired with another story found in Numbers chapter 11. In that, in that portion of Scripture, Numbers chapter 11, Moses is complaining to God, saying, this is so much work for me. This is so heavy for me. I can't, I can't bear it on my own. And God tells him, this is what I'm going to do. Get 70 of your elders, bring them into the camp, into the, out of the camp, into the tent of meeting, and I will take some of the Spirit that's on you and anoint them with it, so that they can also lead the people well. As they do that, they say, okay, he, he, says, he calls the 70 elders to come. Just like in any church, when you call people to come, there are people who just don't. Yes? So a few of them hang back at camp. They don't come. The Spirit of God falls on them, and those in the meeting place start prophesying and declaring the goodness of God. Those who didn't come, they, still, they start prophesying in the camp. And crying out. And Joshua tells Moses, There are people prophesying in the camp. We need to stop them. This house to stop. This is out of control. And what does Moses say in verse 29? He says, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. What is Moses saying? It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me being the head honcho, being in charge so that you could admire me and look up to me and think I have all the answers. No, I wish the Spirit of God would be on all. And what does 1 Peter chapter 2 say? It says this, that we as believers, are, we all belong to a, to a priesthood. There is a priesthood of all believers, that we all have been given certain gifts and certain callings for the body of Christ, so that we would not elevate ourselves above anybody else, so that we would be people who understand that our value comes from God and and we understand who Jesus is. He is God. He is King. He is Master. He is the greatest. We are called to be His servants. We are a royal priesthood, you and I. In my prayer, we understand the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell on all who called upon the name of Jesus. We have all been given the Spirit of God to speak the words of God, the truth of God, declare the wonders of God. And it's not about, I'm greater than you, you're less than me. So what, what is Jesus saying here? The, you understand that jealousy and envy and competition must not be amongst us as followers of Jesus. Jesus. Or we should not elevate ourselves over others, but be the first to serve. Our value is found in what has been done for us in the cross, not what we do. So competition should cease. Jealousy should stop, because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. The truth is, sadly, we have not really come that far from where the disciples were in this story. How often... Do we strive as followers of Jesus to be last, to promote others above ourselves? How often do we do that? We don't. We're like, hey, I gotta be seen, I gotta be heard. Maybe we don't think we don't say that out loud, but we can think it, or even our actions demonstrate it. How often do we try to promote others at work, others at home, even others in the drive-through? No, no, please, you go first. That, I'd never do that. In fact, at the car wash the other day, this lady comes in, swoops in. I was like, oh no. Uh uh-uh. uh. I, I told Fate she, she was driving. I said, if I was driving, I would have like, got right up on her, honked, like, uh uh-uh, uh, sister, get behind me. It's just, it's our nature. Maybe it's my nature. We don't want people to be ahead of us. Man, I feel like I need to confess some stuff. Starbucks, people behind me, I'm sorry. That line at uh, on 16, they don't know how to do it right. So people come in from all angles, and you got to fight for yourself to get in line. I've cut some people off. I know. This is not our nature to promote others before ourselves, but as followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying that's exactly what I want you to do, and the world will take notice. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, that sounds good, but look, I gotta look. No one's gonna promote me at work. I gotta do it. I I, I, I have to take care of myself. I gotta watch out for myself. I got I got family to take care of. I gotta provide for myself. But what if Jesus sees it differently? The whole time Jesus is telling his disciples that if you want to be first, you gotta be last. You gotta be you gotta care for the voiceless, you gotta care for the oppressed, you gotta take care of those most at risk. The whole time he's saying that, he is at the same time telling them, I am God. The whole time. He tells them, you saw me in the mountaintop, I'm God. I came down into the valley, I'm God. I'm going to be killed, but I'll rise again, I'm God. If you want to be first, got to be last. He's telling them, if you're a part of my body, you don't have to care about where you end up. You don't have to be the one striving to, to succeed, and you don't have to be the one who's willing to step on others to get ahead, because I'm God, and if you belong to me, I'll take care of you. I'll be the one that helps you. You're a part of my body. You can put others first. You can be the first to serve. You can lift up others and care for the least of these because you belong to God. You don't have to worry about being last because if, you, if you'll be last, I'll help you become first. And we are in a time right now where we have a great opportunity to be servants of people. When we go out into public, we put masks on pandemic what do we know about the masks they don't protect us it's not for us that we wear masks it's for the other just in case I might have something I don't want to spread it so I put a mask on I do it not for my own concern but for the other it's a demonstration that we care about someone else and for some reason we think I ain't wearing a mask I'm not sick I don't care But Jesus is trying to reveal to us, I want you to care for the other. The masks don't keep us safe. They're there for the sole purpose of caring for the other. The most at risk, the most with those who have health issues, whether they're seen or not seen. We don't know what people might might be wrestling with or struggling in their bodies, so we wear masks to protect them. And right now, we're in the midst of a racial divide in our country, and we reach out and we support our brothers and sisters of color not because it helps promote us or makes us look good or that it helps us in any way but because we care for them because we care about their hearts we care about the situations they've been dealing with we care about their feelings we care about them so we reach out to them I don't care if you say I don't agree with that well I don't think you're interpreting it that way it's not about us it's about them We have to have hearts that say, I care about you first. And I'm preaching to myself. That we care about others more than we care about being right. That we would be disciples of Jesus who say, it's not about me. If I want to be first, I will be last. I'll serve you. I'll care about what you care about. I'll lift up your needs. I'll help you. This is a... We're in two different types of pandemics here that help us serve other people and not be so concerned with ourselves. We aren't in this for us. We're in this for others. It's the heart of Christ, and it should be the heart of every believer. Why? Because Jesus says in chapter 10, I'm jumping ahead, but I'll mention it here. I came to serve and not be served. And for some reason, the church whether it's because of prosperity gospel or some other twisted word of faith movement who said, no, 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 you are to be served and not serve. No, that's backwards. We serve a God who came and modeled what it is to serve others. And in serving others, they receive life, they receive hope, they receive goodness, they receive mercy from God the Father. We are the agents of his grace, and it is demonstrated through our service. Anytime our walk with Jesus becomes about an effort of self-promotion, elevation, or to bring others down to make ourselves look better, we need to recognize that we have gotten off track. Jesus even says it here in verse 39, as they're trying to say, we try to stop this exorcist Even though people were being cast out in your name, another demonstration that you're God. He's using your name. The demons are fleeing your God. He says, don't stop them, verse 39. Don't stop them. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. This saying, you might have heard it backwards before, and it even has gone into the church We've allowed it to enter. You've probably heard it said this way. If you're not for me, you're against me. But there is a major contrast here in what Jesus is saying. Hey, if you're not against me, you're for me. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to believe that, that what you're doing is going to be successful, that what you're doing is going to be a promotion of Jesus and not yourself. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. In today's society, it's the opposite. If you're not for me, if you don't do it the way I want you to do it, then you're against me and you're pushing me down. Jesus is saying to us as the church, no, we should be different from the world. If you're not against me, then you're for me. If you're not doing harm to the work of the gospel, keep going. If you're you're lifting up the name of Jesus, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything and how you're doing it and the way it looks... Keep going. If you're not against us, you're for us. Jesus, in the end, he'll sort it all out. But it helps us to recognize that in our effort to discourage or to shut something down, we might be in the wrong. It's a call for humility. It's a call to understand that it might be coming from a place of jealousy or a place of competition, and we might be the ones who are actually doing the damage to the gospel and not the other. What Jesus is saying, and this is the word for all of us, if you hear nothing else this morning, the word for all of us is this Jesus wants his disciples to have humble hearts. Humble hearts, not pride, not arrogant hearts, humble hearts. We also know this in Micah 6 8. It says that, You know, O oh man, what is good the Lord has shown you. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, to serve somebody, is to humble yourself. To serve others is to humble yourself. Jesus wants us to humble ourselves. And what do we know from Scripture? There's so many things going on in the world today. There's so many things going in your life right now, I know. Several of you are wrestling and dealing with hardship, pain, potential loss, what does the Bible say? If, if my people who are called by my name, who will, if they'll humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, that he will heal our land. But there is, a, there is a need for humility. That we should be a people who love justice, who seek mercy, and who walk humbly with God. Jesus takes it a step further to illustrate it. Verse 41, he says this For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying, An act of service to another in my name has a reward attached to it. There is something that can be earned if you be willing to serve. If you be willing to humble yourself, even a cup of water in my name, there is a reward in heaven attached to it. And he is calling us to serve without judgment, without criticism, without restraint, without arguing with who's right, who's wrong. He's wanting us to serve. And in our service, if our willingness to be last, he will cause his name to be known throughout Madeira, throughout our communities, throughout our nation, throughout the world, if we will be people who serve. We don't have to be concerned with our status, with our self-importance, with looking better than others. Our value is not found in that. Our value is found in Christ. He is the perfect one that we seek after. He is our Savior. He is our King. And He came to serve us so that in turn, by having life in us, We can turn and serve others. He showed us the way, and now we need to respond. As the worship team comes forward in our time of closing this morning, I want to pray for all of those who might be watching right now. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he sees the pain and the struggle. He sees the turmoil, and he came to give you life. He came to give you hope. He came to bring deliverance, and to set you free. Those of you who are struggling today, whether it's addiction, relational issues, sickness in your body, Jesus is the one who holds the key. He's the one who brings freedom. But what what does it call, call for? It calls for us to be humble, to seek his face, to turn from our wicked ways, and he will bring healing that we need. He's the one who brings deliverance. He's the one who gives us hope and a future. For those of you who don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I just want to pray for you right now that God would radically transform you and meet you right where you're at. Wherever you're watching this, the Spirit of God would come upon you. If that's you right now, would you repeat this prayer after me? Say, Lord Jesus, right now, I want to give you my life. Come to me, Holy Spirit, and save me. I turn from my life of sin. I turn from my wicked ways. I turn from thinking I know what's best for me. And I turn to you, Jesus. And I submit my life to you. I give you my life. I humble myself and say, I need a savior. Would you save me, Lord? Come and save me, Holy Spirit. By the blood of Jesus. And the sacrifice on the cross. I accept you now. Forgive me and make me whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel to hear past episodes. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate it and share it with your friends. it helps help us out a lot. If you're interested in supporting the ministry of Central Valley Church, go to cvcmadera.churchcenter.com for more information. We love you.